0: Well, hey there. This is Chris Lay, the podcast operations manager for Lee Enterprises. And for this latest season of Crime Beat Chronicles that you're listening to, we wanted to highlight a series from the Roanoke Times titled Septic that was first reported and produced in 2018 by journalists Jacob Dimmitt and Robbie Korth. A five year old child went missing in Dublin, Virginia, the spring of 2015. When his body was discovered days later in the family's septic tank, the mother was put on trial both by the court system as well as social media, where misinformation, accusations, and vengeance-fueled comments spread unchecked. It's a tragic story, to be sure. But reporters Demet and Korth went to tremendous lengths to capture and present a well-rounded and ultimately humane narrative that explores the way a community failed one of their own while also touching on broader implications like the effects of Facebook, the stigma of drug addiction in rural America, and the distortion of facts. This is the third of what will ultimately be seven episodes releasing every week. So firstly, head back to the start of the series if it's your first time here. And secondly, make sure that you're subscribed to the show wherever you get your podcasts to make sure that you get the latest installments as they premiere. And once you're subscribed you can explore our archives for other true crime stories as told by the journalists who originally reported them. We'll make sure to include links to relevant articles from Roanoke.com in the show notes. So make sure you check those out for even more context and reporting on the story. And finally, if you appreciate what we're doing with this program, we encourage you to invest in local journalism and support the Roanoke Times or whichever newspaper it is that serves your community. It's the work of local reporters that make shows like this, and so many others that you likely enjoy, possible. Thanks for listening, and here is the third episode, The Whole Ashley, which was first produced in 2018 by Roanoke Times journalist Jacob Demmitt and Robbie Korth.
1: We found a cassette tape in an old evidence file in the Pulaski County Courthouse records room while researching Ashley White's life a while back. That sent us down a rabbit hole of searching for a tape player, so we could find out what was on it. I drive a 2007 Honda Accord, which is just a few models too late to have a cassette player. We struck out at an antique store and then a pawn shop, where the owner tried to sell us a broken boombox. We asked some of our older colleagues, but even they had ditched the obsolete technology years ago. We ended up resorting to Amazon, where it turns out you can buy relics of the 1990s, still brand new, out of the box. The player showed up a few days later, and we returned to the windowless, kind of musty records room at the courthouse. We put the tape in and hit play. Emergency.
2: Well, oh God, what's the problem? Oh, God.
3: We were listening to the very moment that Ashley White's life changed forever on April 6, 2001, the day her father was murdered when she was 16 years old.
2: What happened? Oh. That woman on
3: the phone is Gladys Phillips. Her grandson, Lamont DeFries, got into an argument with Ashley's dad, Terry White. DeFries claimed self defense, but the evidence later showed Terry was unarmed that day. It was murder. Oh, oh. Come
2: on out here. What happened? <laughs> Ma'am, I can't help you unless you tell me what's wrong. Well, you can't send nobody. Yes, I can, but you need to tell me what the problem is. I don't know what the problem is. From the home. <laughs> is somebody sick or are you sick? No. Okay. Are you, is, um, uh-huh. is there anybody else in the house with you? <laughs> yes. Yeah. Okay, hold on a second for me. <laughs> no one wants your mercy. Uh, Hello? Hello? What's your Hello. Shot fired down Street. Street. Okay, I've got it. Thank you. Oh, oh, oh. Sir? Hello? We're going to have a call Ma'am? Hello? Sir? Yeah, what's the problem? We had somebody down here named Terry White, mm-hmm. and he was making threats in my front porch. Oh, I know, it's 911. She's still on my and way. he said he could kill me, or he was going to kill me. Sure. Mm-hmm. And I just told the manager to all 8, about it. and for and everybody to Stand by for further. Sir? Yeah. Did you shoot him? Yes, I did. Is he dead? Yes, he is. Subject, shot mail. Subject, subject, DOA. Okay. You know, he, he, he's come out here and talked to my front porch. He's involved in a paternity thing. Mm-hmm. I just told the magistrate, the state police called me the other day. Mm-hmm. The FBI everybody, I told them. I said he was trying to blackmail me. Okay, what's your name? My name is Lamont DeFries. Where'd you shoot him at? I shot him on the front porch while we were sitting <laughs> there. Twenty-oh-three. Okay. A what you shooting with? I mean, he's, he's been making threats before. It's, it should be on record. What's his name? Terry White. Two twenty one. Stay on line with me, okay? Good. I mean, I'm telling Terry White. Cruz, I mean, the man was making threats on me, and I told him that he had to leave. Okay. What's your name? Lamont DeFreeze. Caller advised that his name is Lamont DeFreeze. He advised subject's going to be on front porch. Okay, sir. Um, what'd you shoot him with? 357. He does have a concealed weapon permit. He's he 45. Yes. A different guy when we get there. With his hands completely out. Very cooperative right now. 104. Very cooperative. Telling us no problem. And just the not touch the weapon. not reach Okay. Where's your weapon at? I laid it here on the cub. Uh, Living room side. 20. Okay, could you do me a favor? Don't touch the weapon. Yeah. me twenty-three, also, will go ahead and roll rescue. Twenty-four. You need to step out on the porch with your hands in the air, okay? Okay, I haven't done anything else now. Okay, my officers are there, okay? Okay. All right, is your mom's gonna be all right. Their mother? I don't know. She might need somebody to stay with her. Okay, then. Um, just step out on the porch with your hands in the air, okay? All right, I ain't done nothing else now. That's okay. Just. I was just. I was just defending myself. Okay, Okay. then. Okay. All right, thank you.
3: Uh Uh-huh, bye-bye. From the Roanoke Times newsroom, this is Septic. I'm Jacob Demmitt, reporting with
1: Robbie Korth. The prosecutor for this case happened to be Mike Fleener, the same attorney who would later charge Ashley. Court transcripts show Fleener telling the judge that DeFries and Terry White had been friends. The two got into an argument... Lamont walked away, went inside his house, came out with a gun, and shot and killed Terry. Elsewhere in the file, there's photos of Ashley's dad
3: sitting dead upright in a plastic chair on DeFries' front porch. He has red hair, like Ashley and Noah both. Ashley's child actually took her father's name, Noah Terry
1: Thomas. The evidence file has a court transcript that shows Ashley didn't testify at the trial, but her older sister Mandy did. Here's one of our colleagues reading from that transcript.
4: I'm Terry White's daughter Amanda Worley. You know I really thought about ever since that day what I wanted to say to you. When I was told that you shot my father I never ever would have believed it in a million years. I thought you two were friends. Apparently I was wrong. So I thought long and hard about what happened to my father because I didn't really know what had happened to him other than you had shot him. And I thought about it long and hard. And on that night that you shot that gun and heaven opened up and God and his mother looked down and they took him and they took him to heaven and that's where he is today. So whatever you had planned, Lamont, did not work. My father is happy where he is. What you have done is you have, you made my grandfather lose his son, my mother lose her husband and two children who have lost their father. This past October, I got married, Lamont, and the only thing I wanted was for my daddy to stand outside that church to tell me how beautiful I looked. And do you think I got that? No, I didn't because of some petty argument you had with him, and I just wanted to say that to you.
3: Lamont was found guilty of second-degree murder. He would have been released in 2022, but last year he was charged with unlawful wounding after he fractured his soulmate's skull because he'd left the light on. His term was extended another four years.
1: But the DeFries case wasn't even the reason we were looking through old court records in the first place. We were there for a completely unrelated case from the prior year. But the more we looked around, the more the Pulaski County Courthouse records room kind of began to feel like a museum of Ashley White's tragic life. There's autopsy photos of people she loved, there's clothing and evidence bags, and court transcripts all over the place. One of Ashley's best friends growing up was Tara Rose Muncy, Tara was
3: actually the one who introduced Ashley to Paul Thomas when they started dating in high school. Tara thought they would be a good match, so she cooked a fancy dinner and invited her two friends over. The couple hit it off,
1: and they stayed together. Tara was working at a Taco Bell on January twenty-fifth, 2000. She clocked out, left the restaurant, and then disappeared. A massive search ensued, and the national media swooped into the small town.
4: I miss her so much. I just just want her back. Somebody's got her. I don't know why,
5: but she just wouldn't run, so something's not right, you know, it's just too weird.
1: That first voice you heard there was 15-year-old Ashley White from a TV interview during that time. The video shows her sitting cross-legged on a bed with a group of Tara's friends, pleading for Tara's safe return.
3: But Tara never did come home. A hiker found Tara's body about two weeks later in a ravine six miles away. Jeffrey Allen Thomas, who is in no way related to Paul
1: or Noah Thomas, was eventually convicted of her murder. The trial was the highest profile to hit Pulaski County at the time, a title it would maintain for 15 years, until it was arguably eclipsed by the death of Noah Thomas. Mike Fleener, who prosecuted both Ashley and her father's murderer, also handled this one. It's been revisited by several real-life crime dramas, including the television show Forensic Files and the investigative Discovery Channel's Ice Cold Killers.
3: We had to ask the courthouse clerks to help us dig out Tara's file, which fills an old cardboard box in a locked cupboard, It contained articles of clothing that were entered into evidence, a list of witnesses subpoenaed to testify at the trial, including Ashley herself.
1: All of this is stored in the same room. If you flip through these boxes, you will find photos of Ashley's best friend, murdered when she was 15, her father, murdered when she was 16, and her son, who died when she was 30. Ashley White turned 17
3: just a couple weeks after her dad's death. I tried to think back on what I was doing on my 17th birthday. According to my Facebook post back then, I was bragging about the 88 I got on Dr. Cavell's history exam. I was helping my friends shop around for the first car his parents were about to buy him. I was applying to colleges and taking for granted how much that was going to cost my parents. Those were some critical years in my life, and it's amazing how different my experience was from Ashley's.
1: They really can't even be compared. This part of Ashley's story was not brought into the trial. We didn't really learn all these details of her life until years later. What we did know during the trial was that Ashley and Paul were sticking together. We knew neither had a college degree, they were low income, and living in a trailer. We also knew Ashley had struggled to overcome an opioid addiction. But later, the context seemed to really explain things. Quote, It just felt like tragedy followed her around, Tara Muncy's dad,
3: Billy Muncy, told me once. I think when you go through that much, you either go crazy or you bottle it up inside.
1: Of course, those cases wouldn't be the last time the national media would descend on Pulaski County, and it wouldn't be the last time Ashley was right there in the middle of it all. Ashley and Paul were both arrested the day after Noah's funeral. Both
3: were denied bond and spent over a year in jail awaiting trial. We learned later that much of their time behind bars was spent in solitary confinement for their own protection, given the outrage and media attention surrounding the case. When Ashley was brought to the courthouse, she wore a bulletproof
1: vest. That means just days after Ashley's child died on her watch, she was put in a cell. She sat there, alone for months, with little more than a Bible and her thoughts.
3: If that wasn't enough, while Ashley was in jail, her mother died.
1: Here's court testimony from Deborah Ginder, a volunteer minister who regularly visited Ashley in jail during that time.
0: Deborah Ginder, please come forward. <clears throat> please swear to tell the truth.
5: The whole truth and nothing but the to
2: help you guys. I Thank you, ma'am. Please have a seat. If you will please answer the questions of the attorneys, beginning with Ms. Bulger.
5: Thank you, Your Honor. So,
6: have you spoken with Ashley about the loss of Noah and the separation from Abigail? Yes. Okay. How has she reacted to the loss
5: of Noah with you? The loss of Noah has been absolutely devastating for her. It's generally known that the death of a child is one of the most extreme forms of grief that can be experienced. Her grief has been exacerbated by the circumstances. Traumatic unexpected death makes the grief process much longer and more difficult to negotiate. It's also been exacerbated by the fact that she was almost immediately after his death incarcerated and in isolation for months, which did not afford her the benefits of contact with support people. She has shared with me that during that time, what kept her alive emotionally and spiritually was that she had a Bible with her in isolation and she spent most of her time grieving and reading scripture and praying, it's obvious to me that the loss she has experienced with Noah is very, very profound. And what about the separation from her other child, Abigail?
6: Has she expressed any um, response to that?
5: Yes, actually, Ashley has been grieving three major losses when it comes to to people. One is the death of Noah. One is the separation from her daughter, Abby, and the third is the death of her mother, which occurred since her incarceration. Each of those losses has been a heavy, heavy burden for her to bear, and she has suffered and continues to suffer excruciating pain, not only because those people are not actively a part of her life right now, but because of the... Uh, self-condemnation and the guilt that she has felt, thinking, if I, even though I was the tired mother of a sick infant and an active little boy, if I had made better choices, things would be different.
6: So has she expressed a a significant amount of remorse to you about her actions on, on
5: March 22nd? she has indeed expressed remorse that she made such poor decisions. She has made the comment about leaving the children alone, but she has no explanation for why she would have done such a thing. And she is um, haunted, even tormented, I would say, by the what-ifs that she must live with from now on. So so given all of these um
6: these events that she is coping with, how has she been trying to move forward and cope with them?
5: One of the first things that she has done, as I mentioned, was to turn to Scripture and to pray for God to help her. She has tried to find purpose for her continued living. And she is doing that. She is allowing herself to feel what she feels, not to swallow the grief. And to look for ways to use her experience to make life better for herself, for her daughter, for other people. It's, um, it's still a long road. We tend to think that people should recover fairly quickly from loss. That's often because we're uncomfortable when people are hurting and we can't fix it. The reality is that grief takes a very long time to work through, and she will never recover. She will learn to live with the new normal, and she's working on that.
6: Okay. Thank you, Ms. Ginder. Those are all the questions I have for you, if you could
7: answer any from the common law.
0: Mr. Planner. I don't have any questions.
2: Ma'am, thank you for your testimony. Please watch your step as you step down. Call your next witness.
6: Your Honor, we have no further witnesses. Um, however, I do have a, a stack of letters here from family, friends, members of the community. Um, I can go through by name and, and relation, but they all include that in their letters, so I'm not sure if the court feels that's necessary. I would move to admit those as defense exhibit one collectively. collectively. Yes.
2: Is there any objection? All right. The letters uh, will be admitted collectively as Defense Exhibit 1.
1: One of those was a six-page letter handwritten by Paul Thomas, Noah's father and Ashley's boyfriend of half their lives. He wrote that he did not blame Ashley for their son's death and that she was a devoted mother who never neglected Noah and would spend weeks planning the boys' birthday parties. It was even her idea to sign Noah up to play basketball, and she made sure he never missed a practice. She would let Noah sleep by her side when he was sick and was careful to only turn the light out after Noah's nightlight was on. He said she was being unfairly portrayed as a monster by the prosecution and the media.
3: To conclude the letter, Paul wrote, Noah knew that if he set his mind to it, there was nothing he couldn't do. Ashley taught him that. Ashley loves her kids very much and would do anything for them. These things I say are the real Ashley, the Ashley that I know. I wouldn't trade Ashley for anyone in the world, and I am happy and proud that she is the mother of my children. I thank God every day for the family he gave me. I will love Ashley for the rest of my life. And in closing, I would ask you to look at the whole Ashley, the real Ashley. Ashley is a unique and amazing person,
1: just like our son Noah was. We interviewed Ashley's lawyer, Kelsey Bolger, recently. Kelsey was pretty new on the job when this high-profile case landed on her desk. She had been in her role in the public defender's office for less than a year. But she said she formed a bond with Ashley, largely based on mutual trust. She declined to get too deep into her client's personal life, but she did give little glimpses at what it was like being in Ashley's shoes as all this was happening. We asked if she was surprised at how large a role Ashley's life situation, poverty, former drug use, a messy house, played in the case.
3: When you went into this case, did you expect that to be such a big part of it?
7: Um, No. And I was really shocked by that and, like, really discouraged, I think, to see that that's the way that people reacted to her because I know Ashley and I interacted with her. So I knew that the way that people perceived her is not how she actually is. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think you know, the way that people kind of took rumors and just ran with them was was really sad because it kind of showed a, a lack of, I guess, respect or appreciation for what the truth was. Um, and I'm not really sure what caused that. I'm not sure if seeing her picture and seeing that she lived in a trailer and just kind of judging her family um, kind of caused people to just assume that she had done something so terrible. I think... Social media was probably a huge role because, you know, people can spread a rumor very quickly. Um, but I was certainly not prepared for the you know, opinions and the misinformation that people were spreading were yeah. around. I feel like it's just sort of a, everyone should understand, well, everyone has a story. There's always more to the story than what you see in the papers. And I mean, obviously, I hate to pick on you guys, but the Roanoke Times played a role in that too of, you know, calling him the slain slain five-year-old and printing the story about her in the hotel room with marijuana. Like, I think that people kind of had it out from her from the beginning, so the media picked up on that and kind of just capitalized on everything that they could. You know, every little tidbit about her was interesting to people, so
2: Hmm.
7: I think... You know, that was that was pretty unfair to her, I thought.
3: In your time with her, that that she this this kind of becoming a celebrity, how did she respond to that?
7: Well, I think just generally, if you consider anybody in that position, you know, they're in jail for a crime that they did not commit, which just on its own is an unbelievably traumatizing thing. Mm -hmm. They just lost their five year old son, tragically. Um, they're not able to see their wife partner or her other daughter, um, and to know that people, her own community is calling her a murderer and a drug addict and all these terrible things and just sort of being more interested in, I guess, her, her like downfall than anything else. I think that's really hard. I mean, you probably feel very alone. You feel betrayed by your own community. Um, you know, I think it's it's really hard to to bounce back from that kind of trauma. When when
3: did you get involved with this case? Like, did you watch? Did you see it on the news before you were assigned to it, or did you know from the get go that this was your client?
7: So, I actually I was home in New York when I saw that he was missing, um, but I was assigned to it. It was, I think, early April of 2015, um, because that was my day in JDR court. So it was really just sort of chance that, you know, the way the schedule worked, that it became my case.
3: Did this case kind of, um, I don't know, you see documentaries of of lawyers that that have a case that really like strikes close to home and and they kind of throw themselves into it. Uh, Was this that case for you?
7: Um, I think it was and I, I hope I never have another case like this because this was one of those cases where no one was listening to us no one cared if she was innocent no one cared about the presumption of innocence you know it felt like everyone was out for blood and any defense attorney is going to tell you that the worst thing in the world is to have an innocent client because the pressure is so much higher the stakes are so much higher Um, which is not to say, you know, that we don't do our best for every client, whether they're, they're guilty or not. Um, but it felt like everything was an uphill battle and, and almost for, for no reason, right? Because the evidence against her was not particularly strong. So it's not like we had bad facts from the beginning. I did not think our facts were bad. We had facts that sounded very bad. But when you look at the case law and you look at the statute that they charged her with, I never thought that they had a strong case. But it almost started to feel like the law did not matter. So we were arguing something completely different, which was kind of foreign territory to me. Yeah. When you walked out of the bond hearing,
3: did you expect them to be going home that day or were you were you surprised at all at the result of that?
7: Um, I, was, I was not surprised surprised, but I was definitely disappointed um, at the way all of those bond hearings turned out because those two people should have never been held without bond. There is no reason that the two of them were held. Mm -hmm. They have no record, you know, there's no actual evidence that they were a danger to the community, that they're a danger to themselves, that they wouldn't appear for trial. They have, their entire family was in the area. So that was the first time that I started to worry how much the media and the public outcry was going to influence what we were doing inside of the courtroom. Because any other person would have been released and should have been released, you know, with a PR bond and pretrial trial services. But because everything was so insane out in the community, those two people were held.
1: Septic is produced by Jacob Demet and me, Robbie Korth. Music comes to us courtesy of Mike Gangloff and Matt Payton. All courtroom audio was obtained from the Pulaski County Circuit Court Clerk's Office after a request to Judge Bradley Finch. This podcast is all about presenting an accurate account of the death of Noah Thomas and his parents' legal saga. All audio has been edited for brevity and clarity. For pictures, original documents, and other extras, visit septicpodcast.com. And feel free to reach out to us at septic at Roanoke.com.
3: This is a copyrighted podcast of the Roanoke Times. All rights reserved.
0: Thank you so much for listening. Again, this was the third of what will ultimately be seven episodes dropping every week right here in the podcast feed. So subscribe wherever you get your shows to guarantee that you'll get the latest installments as they premiere. And once you're subscribed... Feel free to explore our archives for other true crime stories as told by the journalists who originally reported them. You can find links to relevant articles from Roanoke.com in the show notes. And finally, if you appreciate what we're doing with this program, we encourage you to invest in local journalism and support the Roanoke Times or whichever newspaper it is that serves your community. For Lee Enterprises,
5: this is Chris Lay. Thanks again for listening.